Podo. Every good podcast has a protagonist. Someone to engage with, to identify with, someone to love or to hate, someone who makes you tweet with wild abandon or recommend their soothing tones to your colleagues at the water cooler. Someone. Lynette Dawson was reported missing by her husband, former Newtown Jets rugby league star Chris Dawson. Something has absolutely happened in this town. And I'm about had enough of shit town and the things that goes on. This is the testimony of Elizabeth Holmes going on the record in San This podcast does not have a someone. It has a somewhere. That somewhere is a town. A town with a quaint old high street of timber-clad buildings, a handsome Anglican church and an operational heritage steam railway line. It is everything you'd want from Middle England. Twee, humdrum, conservative. But bubbling under that is something altogether different. A town where Hollywood celebrities come to practice controversial religions. A town where druids meet in forests by dead of night. A town where paranormal investigators hunt the spirits of dead martyrs through subterranean tunnels. This is East Grinstead. And this is the town that didn't stare. I'm Nick Hilton. Let me take you back half a million years. We're in Boxgrove, England. It's an eternity ago. And yet dinosaurs have already been extinct for 64 and a half million years. What feels like an eternity is nothing compared to an actual eternity. And it was here in this sleepy West Sussex town that in 1993, the year I was born, coincidentally... A fragment of tibia was found. That splinter of shinbone once belonged to Homo heidelbergensis, an early human who ruled the Middle Pleistocene era. To this day, the so-called Boxgrove Man is the oldest human fossil discovered in Britain. Hello, Mark Roberts. Hi, Mark. It's Nick here. Hi, Nick. Mark Roberts is an archaeologist and senior research fellow at University College London. It was his excavations in 1993 that unearthed the Boxgrove Man. Oh, God, that really is a trip down memory lane. I, as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, something like that, was supervising a Romano-British excavation in the quarry complex here. And whilst I was doing that, in the evenings, I used to go down into the quarry where I would find these stone tools, hand axes. So I, with the quarry company's permission ran a small geological investigation in Christmas 1982, and we excavated that. We found material, we call it in situ, it just means in place, which is, again, very, very rare, because these hand axes I've been finding were all in in the gravels that were above this layer. And the project built and built. And then I think in 1985 or six, we discovered the first bones. For bone to survive, you you need it to be buried by calcareous or chalk-rich sediments above it. So as we went northwards, we came into an area where these chalk-rich 
deposits were and there we got bone and once we had bone and fauna together it became clearly one of the most important sites for the Paleolithic in Britain and in Europe. We carried on and then in 1993 we discovered the first human remains from the excavations. I found a bit more in 1995 and we finished our excavations in 1996. So that's it. All those years of research in a few sentences. The village of Boxgrove sits now less than 10 kilometres from the shores of the English Channel. It's fairly typical of this part of the world, full of quaint cobblestone houses, a tea room and a little Church of England school. Only the ruins of the Boxgrove Priory stand, roofless like two hulking tombstones, hinting at the ancient past of this site. Now, Boxgrove is an interesting place. Probably. I've never been there. But towns that are famous mostly for their association with human remains are Tenapenny. Just a few miles down the road from Boxgrove, for example, is the village of Poolborough, which will be forever remembered in the public consciousness as the place where, in July of 2000, the body of the abducted schoolgirl Sarah Payne was found. But that's another story for another Grimmer podcast. The reason we're stood here in the whipping West Sussex wind half a million years ago is to see the land as Homo heidelbergensis once did. So I'm stood here at Boxgrove today. It's a beautiful, warm, sunny May day. And the climate, from what we've been able to work out, was very similar to today. Same climate, same plants, same trees. So I'm looking around now. What can I see? Hawthorns, blackthorns. Lots of oak trees, ashes, one wild service tree, all native trees. So all those trees and plants would have been here. Same insects, there's a small blue butterfly just gone common blue just in front of me. But, and this is the big but, eating the hawthorns, the oaks and what have you, and running around this landscape are elephants, rhinoceroses, wolves, hyenas, lions, a leopard-type animal, red deer, roe deer, fallow deer, giant deer, bison. It's everything that you would recognise if I took you back in a time machine, except the animals. The animals are what you would now associate with more of a sort of African faunal guild. We also shouldn't forget that there was a brief shining window at the start of the 20th century when the world believed that Sussex had provided evidence of a missing link in human evolution the holy grail for archaeologists and paleontologists. That happened at Piltdown, some 30 miles east of Boxgrove, where, in 1912, amateur archaeologist Charles Dawson uncovered a humanoid skull in the Pleistocene gravel beds he was excavating. This find was followed by a jawbone, set of teeth and primitive tools, which Dawson presented to the Natural History Museum. Piltdown Man is uh, one of those famous uh, and important discoveries because at the time it was first announced, it was perceived to be the missing link. That's the voice of Miles Russell, a senior lecturer in prehistoric archaeology at the University of Bournemouth and the author of The Piltdown Man Hoax, because that's what it was, a hoax. Piltdown, when it was first announced, seemed to be an individual that had both those characteristics had a human-like skull suggesting an advanced 
developed brain case and intelligence and an ape-like jaw suggesting that uh, perhaps rather more primitive forms of, of communication but it seemed to be a perfect fit uh, and the fact that it was found with stone tools suggesting that the individual was intelligent and could manufacture its own artifacts so it ticked all those boxes and it was a fantastic discovery for British archaeologists. So talk me through the process of debunking the Piltdown Man discovery. In the decades immediately following it, other skeletal remains around the world showed that the process of human evolution was very different to that being suggested by Piltdown, because what you've got another discoveries is a more human-like face developing first, as communication, as eating methods change, the face changes, evolves first, and the brain case is much more slow. Piltdown's actually got the key characteristics of human brain and ape face the wrong way round. It should be more human-like face than an ape-like skull. And so in the 1920s and 30s, bearing in mind Piltdown was found in, in 1912, paleontologists and evolutionary scientists were becoming more and more worried that Piltdown didn't fit the pattern that was emerging around the world. They didn't want to dismiss it because it was a British discovery, but similarly, they couldn't find how it fitted with the other discoveries. But it wasn't until the early 1950s when all the, the main people involved with the, the early project had died, did the Natural History Museum, who in, in possession of the finds, actually allow them to be investigated. And immediately upon investigation, by looking at, you know, very simply, by looking at the, the teeth under a, a microscope, it was quite clear that the wear patterns on Piltdown Man weren't caused by natural abrasion. Someone had filed those teeth down with an iron sort of object, an iron file. And then when they studied the staining on the bones, they could see that was artificial. When they were later able to use radiocarbon dating, it was clear that the skull was medieval and human, dating to about the 15th century. The jaw was about three centuries later, and it was an orangutan. So on the one hand, scientists, I think, were quite relieved because they could remove it from the history books. But a lot of people who were very attached to it, especially the British public, were outraged for thinking they'd been deceived for the better part of half a century. The cover of your book says case closed, so you can sort of reveal who who done it. Although there's never a complete sort of smoking gun with regard to Piltdown Man, I think there's no doubt that the fabricator was uh, Charles Dawson. He's a country solicitor working in Upfield. He was the first person to discover the bones at Piltdown. He's got a series of 38 separate archaeological hoaxes going right the way back until his sort of early 20s. And all these finds are all sort of relatively low key, but it's all quite clear they're all hoaxes. And Piltdown, in, in effect, is the, the climax of his career. It is the epitome of his sort of life as a hoaxer. He, he's the only person who's involved at every point of the discovery. Every time someone finds something in the spoil heap, he's nearby. Whenever something else is located, he's there. He's the only person who could really be involved. But when you look at his, his career, he's, he's got form. It's a dangerous thing for him to have been doing because he was a solicitor. He's the man of the law. If he'd ever been found out in his lifetime, that would have been the end of his career. That would be at the end of everything. But he was doing it, I think, to try and gain a degree of scientific kudos. He was very much a celebrity of his day. And I think with someone with no university training, with no sort of archaeological background, these sorts of discoveries elevated him to a whole new sort of celebrity circle. You know, he was meeting the king, he was meeting members of the royal family. You know, he was moving in, in a much advanced um, sort of circles in respect of, of what, what he discovered. Piltdown Man haunted my dreams as a child. 
primarily because I associated it for some reason with the phrase Appendix Man. Appendix Man was a 1999 episode of Touch of Frost, the David Jason starring detective show that Wikipedia describes as depicting an experienced and dedicated detective who frequently clashes with his superiors, which makes it sound precisely as original as it was. Appendix Man terrified me as a child, particularly the image half-remembered of a man in a wheelchair, presumably the titular Appendix Man, being tipped into a river. The episode was written by the late, great Sir Malcolm Bradbury, who was not available for interview. Piltdown Man always sent a shiver down my spine, because it reminded me somehow of my nightmares about the Appendix Man. It was also an anxiety-inducing phrase for many archaeologists to come. Archaeologists like Mark, who was frequently reminded of the Piltdown hoax when he discovered the Boxgrove Man. Oh, you can't believe how when these discoveries came out, this was really before any form of social media. I mean, there was rudimentary emails, but I got emails, I got letters, those old things that came in the post, telephone calls from people saying, oh, Roberts, it's just another Piltdown. The then chief archaeologist of English heritage, as it was then, he was paranoid that there may be an element of a forgery. We had to spend ages convincing him. The problem was, is that the stone tools that come out at the same level as this human remains and animal remains, they look like they were made yesterday. Because they're in such fine-grained deposits, they've basically been tossed back into the lake. Piltdown plagued him. And it wasn't until we could actually get him down here and show these things coming out the ground that I think he actually finally finally was able to accept that it was all real. So yes, the shadow of Piltdown is, is long indeed. Piltdown is on the opposite side of Sussex to Boxgrove. Sussex, as it is generally known, is actually two counties for administrative purposes, east and west. It sits like a long cushion beneath London. And indeed, that metaphor works in another sense, as it's where many of London's rich to camp at weekends to relax or raise their horrible suburban brood. There are two great swathes of countryside that define Sussex, the South Downs and the High Weald. One, a national park. The other, an area of outstanding natural beauty. They are both nice places to walk your dog, watch planes descending towards Gatwick and unearth human remains. The sex in Sussex is really a sax, as in Saxon. The Sus, which is less sexy, is really a South. It is the land of the South Saxons. Just as Wessex was the land of the West Saxons, Essex of the East Saxons, Middlesex of the Middle Saxons. What of the North Saxons? Well, as a point of differentiation, Northerners have always pointed to their Anglian rather than Saxon heritage. So no Norsex. At this point in time, Sussex is like a patriotic fever dream for Brits. Rolling hills, cute little peasant folk making bread rolls, wild horses galloping free and happy. It's basically an advert for butter, or maybe some new sustainable banking product. To look at, Sussex is a beautiful garden in the summer. It's very well manicured. It's not like Cornwall. It's not like wild and moorland. It's beautifully manicured. But if you just look under the surface of Sussex, what you'll find is that Sussex was a swamp. That's the voice of Dav the Bard. We'll hear more from Dav as the series progresses. It was an impenetrable place that nobody wanted to go to. It had its own disease, the ague, which is like a malaria. 
and the only occupiable space was the coastland. It also had its uh, had an ancient forest, the Forest of Anderida, that used to start from Kent and all the way from Sussex right the way down to Southampton. It's said that a squirrel could hop on a tree and not touch ground until it got to Southampton. This massive, primordial, deep, malaria-filled <laughs> forest. <laughs> and so if you look at the, the forts, all of our living places were on the top of the downs because in the valley well that was dangerous places that was the places of danger that was the places where there were where you went into this wood and you might never come out and if you look at the downs at that time a lot of the downs would have been tree covered as well not with oaks and ashes and stuff like that but certainly with hawthorn and, and the lower sort of shrub trees so our our history of was of living on the top of these downland hills and then in september of 1066 when a fleet of ships led by William, Duke of Normandy, landed at Pevensey, Sussex's position in world history was changed forever. From there, William's forces marched to Hastings, where they built a nice little wooden castle, giving them a foothold in England, and waited to meet the armies of Harold Godwinson on the battlefield of Hastings. And from there, the next phase in the county's evolution began. They had a, had a sparse population, Obviously, with most of it, it was along the coast. Pevensey and Rye getting sparser inland as you head towards the, the well. That's the voice of Christopher Hewitt, a fellow at the University of Saskatchewan. He studied the topography of Sussex at the time of William's arrival. Uh, the average age of the population was about early to mid-20s. Now, the bulk of the population would have been probably between 15 and 60. That's a wide range. And a relatively small population. I, I estimated between five and 6,000 people in the area. Obviously, the majority in the, in the major towns, such as Rye or Pevensey in Hastings. And then, obviously, it being a lot sparser uh, further inland. Which all brings us to East Grinstead. Grinstead itself means green place, which perhaps it once was, before the greys and browns and blacks and whites of industrialization rolled into its path. The tiny Saxon village avoided the Francophonization of its name after the Norman conquest, and in 1086 it was there, in the pages of the Doomsday Book, a speck of history, then scarcely more than a few buildings that gradually, as time unfurled like a Jacob's Ladder, became more than that, a market, a church, an identity. East Chris is a very strange one because there's been activity in the area for many, many, many years, anything sort of like the Roman times onwards, but... There wasn't really a settlement here. It was largely farmland, never really got sort of developed into anything more than a few scattered manors and houses and sort of the odd bit of farming area. It's only really kind of post 1066 and the Norman invasion that it kind of really starts to be, to develop into more of a permanent settlement. And that's all down to the the work of a chap called Gilbert de Aquila, who essentially is known as the founder of East Grinstead. He managed to get what was then known as the Rape of Pevensey, which essentially is a very large strip of land from running from Pevensey in the south on the coast all the way up to East Grinstead in the north. He was awarded the Rape of Pevensey in the sort of the early 1100s. And he turned out to be quite a very keen kind of infrastructure person and quite keen to sort of build settlements. And he noticed that at the north of his area, there wasn't really a settlement, but there had been a church. St. Sovens, the church had been here for many, many years. So he decided to try and build a sort of a permanent northern settlement to his land. And that wound up being East Grinstead. All of this was a process designed to tame a county that had struggled against being tamed. Because as Dav, who's a practicing pagan, I should say, notes. 
St. Wilfrid landed on Sussex to convert the pagans, and it was the last county to be Christianised in the whole of Britain, Sussex. But we'll come back to East Grinstead's rich pagan history in another episode. That all lies simmering under the surface. And right now, we're concerned with what East Grinstead looks like above ground, to day trippers down from London streaking past on the A22. And right in the middle of the town, puncturing the skyline like a great erect beacon of Anglican conformity, is St Swithin's Church, where the normal, regular, traditional, God-fearing folk of East Grinstead gather of a Sunday to give thanks for living in such a normal, regular, traditional, God-fearing place. It's a complicated church. That's the voice of Caroline Metcalf, a local historian. It started in the medieval times, probably in the 900s. We know about it in the about the 1070s, that it had a connection with Lewis Priory. And it went on with various patrons embellishing it. But in 1683, first of all, the church was struck by lightning and that was damaged and it was it damaged the tower, which was very badly repaired. And in 1785, the tower collapsed and it destroyed a great deal of the medieval church. So it then had to be rebuilt, which cost a huge amount of money and wasn't very popular because local people and even out in the country, people were asked to contribute. What you see is really a 19th century church, but it's got medieval origins. So it's confusing in that way and interesting. East Grinstead. This is where we're going to spend this podcast. We'll follow energy currents beneath the earth. We'll find out about the radical medical practices that made the town a safe haven for Burns victims in the Second World War. And we'll speak to believers and non-believers of Scientology, Mormonism, Paganism and more. All in this sleepy Sussex town. This is your protagonist. Well, yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting doing a portrait of the town in this way, I think it's really interesting. I think you should totally persevere. That's the voice of John Ronson, who you'll hear more from later in the series. He's someone who spent his professional life looking at stories from the margins of society, which, to the untrained eye, looks like the opposite of stuffy, stale East Grinstead. But beyond the chocolate box high street, beyond the picturesque almshouse and the sweeping vistas of untrammeled field and forest, beyond the 35,000-odd people who routinely return a Conservative MP, there is another town. A town that is like a mirror image of the East Grinstead that's been pulled up through the ages, still riddled with history and tradition, but uncanny, unsettling. There's a reason that people call East Grinstead the town that didn't stare. And over the course of this series, we'll find out more about why this tucked away backwater has become Britain's boiling pot of alternative and, to put it mildly, strange belief systems. On this series of The Town That Didn't Stare... I've seen some things that no one should see. I've seen people dumped in sewage. You know, I've been locked in a room for six hours till I confess. There's massive amounts of emotional trauma that come with it and take a lot of processing. And then she caught the fire from the bottom of her dress going to her head, and then it whizzed off in a little white ball and then disappeared. Because we've got that fascinating mix of respectable Protestantism and then that sort of brutal paganism, which somehow seems to still be underneath. They posed a threat. I mean, there were riots in East Grinstead against these nuns. And if you get in too deep with them, you can be in trouble. They'll send people after you and 
that's some bad shit that can go down. So you had 50 pagans in a room, you get 50 different answers. The person who was elected the secretary had no fingers, so he couldn't write any notes, and the treasurer was elected because he had no legs and therefore couldn't run off with the money. This has been episode one of The Town That Didn't Stare, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The intro and some incidental music is by George Jennings, and the end credits music is by Matt Payne and Ollie Lloyd at Shipyard Audio. On this episode, my interviewees were Mark Roberts, Miles Russell, Darth the Bard, Christopher Hewitt, Caroline Metcalf, and John Ronson. This is the first part of a six-part series available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. The Town That Didn't Stare is a Podo podcast. To find out more, visit podopods.com. That's P O D O T pods.com. Mm-hmm.